You're listening to Creatives Prevail, unraveling the stories of creative professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creatives Prevail. I am, of course, your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and this is going to be a recap episode. I'm going to be taking uh, sort of a vacation, if you will, but I'm actually going to Walt Disney World with the host of Imagination Skyway, Matthew Kroll, who happens to be my cousin and has been a guest on the Creatives Prevail podcast before. So since I'm taking a little bit of a trip, I figured that I would do this recap of one of the episodes on Imagination Skyway, which is all the music from the Disney Renaissance era, which is everything from The Little Mermaid up until Tarzan. So this is part of the Mouse and the Music segment that we sometimes do and uh, thought everyone would enjoy. So this is going to be part one. If you want to listen to part two, please check out the Imagination Skyway podcast. Now let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Kroll, and you're listening to episode 154 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's podcast episode, we're going to discuss an incredible subject, or at least I think so, which is the music of the Disney Renaissance. I know a lot of you out there have an affinity for the Disney Renaissance films, which are every movie from The Little Mermaid in 1989 until Tarzan in 1999. It spans the films like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules. There are some iconic Disney films that debuted between 1989 and 1999. And one of the elements of these films that makes them so incredible, so memorable, is the music that we hear throughout each one of these movies. In today's podcast episode, which is part one, we're going to discuss a little bit about the history of the Disney Renaissance and how we define the Disney Renaissance, and we'll dive deep into the first few Disney Renaissance films, which include The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under, which is one that is often forgotten, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. And then in next week's podcast episode, part two, we'll dive into Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. I really had an amazing time discussing this topic, and I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to this topic as well. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels, and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast.
So we are back to discuss the mouse and the music, which is always a fun conversation about some of our favorite Disney music across the Disney universe. And up until this point, we have just discussed the parks. We thought it might be worth talking about a subject that is perhaps the most revered, loved among Disney fans, which is especially if you if you grew up in the in the 80s or beyond, which is the Disney Renaissance. It is filled with some of the most iconic Disney music of all time. And we are going to tackle this subject as best as we can. I say we because it's not only myself, but of course, welcome back, Mike, to Imagine Your Podcast and the Mouse and the Music. How are you, Mike? The Renaissance, my machine works. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. For all of you who don't know, that's from the beloved attraction, Timekeeper. Uh, so one of my favorite attractions. And hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be back on the show. Oh, we quote Timekeeper all the time. It's such a Good. fun, extinct attraction. Uh, so I don't know if every every listener remembers Timekeeper, but if you don't, that's where Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor at Magic Kingdom is now. Previously, it was Timekeeper, which originated at Disneyland Paris. So, Mike, I'm really excited to talk about the Disney Renaissance. This is, of course, going to be an important conversation because, again, it's perhaps the most iconic period, at least in modern times, for many Disney fans. And I know that so many of the listeners of Imagine Your Podcast and so many followers on social media grew up during this era. And if they even are older than that, of course, still have a lot of fond memories of the Disney Renaissance itself. Um, so we should probably talk a little bit about the Disney Renaissance itself. And what I'm hoping to do today is kind of define how we think about the Disney Renaissance, because there is a particular definition for it. We'll discuss philosophically some of the things that we believe make the Disney Renaissance so iconic. And we'll talk a little bit about the history and go sort of movie by movie, discussing the soundtrack, the score, some stories that might have been involved with the creation of these films, and recap and conclude with our wrap-up thoughts about the Disney Renaissance as a whole. So it's a robust topic, but one that I hope everyone really enjoys listening to as much as I know, Mike, you and I are going to enjoy discussing this. Um, so let's kind of start with the definition of the Disney Renaissance. This is a very particular period of time that ranges from The Little Mermaid, which was the first official Disney Renaissance film, and takes us all the way to Tarzan, which is considered to be the last Disney Renaissance film. And we'll talk in a little bit about why the Disney Renaissance kind of concluded and how we entered into the next era of Disney movies. But that there are a total of 10 movies throughout the Disney Renaissance, which include The Little Mermaid, as I mentioned, The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and as I mentioned, the final one is Tarzan. Now, Mike, from your research, what did you, because I know we, we kind of, we really dove deep into this topic and preparing for this conversation. What did you learn about the origins of the Disney Renaissance or anything you discovered from an overview of, of why we kind of call it the Disney Renaissance? And I can help to fill in some of the gaps and some of the research that I did as well. But why don't you kick us off with what you found 
as a whole, as a summary of the Disney Renaissance. Absolutely. I also want to make a note about, to kind of give into context of the the time span of the Disney Renaissance, right? You mentioned yes. from The Little Mermaid all the way up until Tar Tarzan, which is a 10-year period of time. And to put that into context, that's basically 2013 until now, which is both a very long period of time, but also not at the same token. And I found that really kind of interesting that it was a 10 year block, which as a, I think when we were all younger, it felt like if you know, like an eternity. Was <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the best word. Yeah. It, eternity. But in reality, it, you know, it was, act, it was not that, not long uh, period of time, but still 10 years of having these absolutely incredible animated films and truly did define Disney for a very, very long time. So I think that's also important to really kind of put that into context as far as that length of time but as far as the renaissance itself to me the little mermaid is what truly brought the aspects of broadway into animated films now animated films and disney in the past of course had music as an integral part of the story and they had songs but this was really truly a time where they really brought that aspect of broadway into it and really brought a whole new life and meaning to animated features and you can see that that it had an impact not only within disney itself but as far as animated features you know entirely moving forward it did. And I think to, to your point, Disney did have some, especially during, I think, Walt's era, there were some elements of Broadway, especially if you look at Mary Poppins, that inevitably became a, a Broadway musical, but was designed as a musical very much in line with the golden age of Hollywood musical films with a little bit of extra special effects, animation, all the tricks that Disney had in the business. And you know, after Walt Disney passed, there were a couple of additional periods in animation. We had sort of this post-Walt era, um, starting with the Jungle Book, where it it still stood the test of time. We still have some iconic films like Robin Hood, the Aristocats. We have the Jungle Book. Um, those are still memorable movies. But after that, once we got to the late 70s and the majority of the 80s, there was this kind of a dip in the quality of Disney films. We still, again, have iconic films, um, but this is a time period where we see the Fox and the Hound, we see the Great Mouse Detective, we see the Black Cauldron, um, we see Oliver and Company. You know, some of those films in there are perhaps favorites of listeners of the show, but when it compares to movies like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Alice in Wonderland, Pinocchio, Snow White. It didn't quite live up to the caliber of those films. And a lot of that has to do with the leadership and the direction of the company. And at the time, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on Disney films, or at least in the investment in those Disney films. But along comes Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, um, who take over leadership of the Walt Disney Company and immediately start to change direction and focus more emphasis on Disney films. Now, they did enter this space, became the CEO, the president, Walt Disney Company in 1984. But if you think about the amount of time it takes to change the strategic direction of a movie studio, 
and to start production of new films. We're talking about still five years. That's a pretty quick turnaround from a movie studio production perspective to not only deliver one hit, but 10 hits. Um, although we could argue, we'll talk about Rescuers Down Under and some of the differences there, maybe nine out of the 10, but still that's a that's a solid track record that you have nine out of 10 films that become these iconic Disney films that fans to this day still look back on and remember and love and watch and share with their children and grandchildren. And it's such an important era in the Disney hist- the com- the history of the Disney company. Um, so that that's kind of a, a little bit of a rough overview. Mike, I think you grew up, you know, I, I was born in 88, so I don't have as many memories of the first few films, seeing them in theaters. Of course, I still remember as a kid, as a young kid, seeing a lot of these movies on VHS tapes. And then eventually I remember going to the theaters to see some of the later Disney Renaissance films. Do you have any memories of seeing any of these movies in theaters? Because I know you're a few years older than I am, so you may have some memories or at least some of your memories from seeing them at home. I remember pretty much every single Disney Renaissance film and seeing it in the theaters. Wow. That's awesome. Because you were still the fairly only... young for The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid, I was I was five. Right. So I mean I was at that I do that one is a little bit more vague. And so is Beauty and the Beast. Those two particularly, I don't re- I mean I do know that I went to the theaters and saw them, but I don't really have that much memory of seeing them in theaters. I do have vivid memories of, ironically, The Rescuers Down Under. I actually remember seeing that in in theaters. Visually, it's a great film. Visually, it's a fantastic film. So I do remember that one. I actually remember the intro. Like, that's actually, like, it's like so burned into my brain is the intro where you're kind of in, you know, in the, in the uh, tundra, if you will. And then all of a sudden you have, you have the drums going like, and then the title comes up. I remember that as a kid. I was like, oh, this is exciting. So (laughs) I, and then I remember in, uh, when I was living on Long Island, I actually remember seeing the Lion King I think twice, but like one time I remember like going into, I forgot why, but we, my, I was with my, my mom at the time and going into the theater while it was already uh, playing. I don't remember why or the story behind it. I'm pretty sure she doesn't remember, but I I remember going into it like while it was, it was happening. And I don't remember why, but I do remember seeing the film as a kid from start to end. I maybe we're seeing friends or something. I don't remember. Um, but I do have that remembering as the uh, for the Lion King, and then ever since then, every especially after that point, I I re- vividly remember seeing every single Disney Renaissance film in theaters. Now I'm gonna ask this question. I already know the answer because we've discussed it in the past, and if the listeners can't see our backgrounds, but we are very clearly indicating what our favorite Disney Renaissance films are. Mike, what is your favorite Disney Renaissance film? You know, it is usually considered the the black sheep of them, and mm-hmm. that is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And yeah. usually that's not yeah. the favorite, but I remember Hunchback of Notre Dame, when I, when I saw that as a child, truly influenced me. It really did impact me as a person after I saw that in theaters. And because the not only was the story so good, it was... 
The thing that really took away for me on the story end was the fact that the hero didn't get the girl. And it really posed a more realistic view of how life actually is. And that really took it to me. And we can also go deep dive into story a lot. And obviously, we weren't focusing on music on this aspect of things. And there's actually somebody made a really interesting post not too long ago. And I'll just go into this real quick about actually the psychology behind the characters and why uh, Phoebus um, deserved to get Esmeralda in the end, not just because he was good looking, but actually because of how he respected her as a person. And in comparison to Quasimodo, who uh, essentially almost object objectified her. So it was kind of like an interesting tank and going, oh, I didn't even think about it that way. But I really liked the uh, the the that approach to it. And that really what, what take was a huge takeaway for me, because oh, most of the stories, especially as a child growing up, is like the hero always gets the girl or hero always gets the girl. And this was the one time that the the protagonist didn't. And but but came to his own and for his own self-respect of not only himself, but the people around him. And it was such a very, you know, uplifting message in that way. And the music itself, which just was so beautiful. And obviously, we'll get into that in a second, you know, as we get uh, further down. But the music itself was just absolutely so beautiful. So, you know, engrossing. And uh, I mean, I love everything about that film. So if that's my long-winded explanation of why Hunchback of Notre Dame is my favorite by far. I'll give you my short answer, The Lion King, because it's the best. No, I... <laughs> I, I, I... <laughs> I'll fight you. <laughs> I, I, I pre Trust me, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I think, is perhaps the most underrated um, Disney Renaissance film. And a lot of the reasons you mentioned, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to that story. The Lion King is my favorite I think part of that has to do with the music, to be honest. The story itself is also really interesting, but all of these stories, with the exception of a couple, are not entirely original. I mean, The Hunchback of Notre Dame is based on a novel um, of the same title. <laughs> we, um, and then The Lion King is based on Hamlet. It's th these are these are old stories that are retold in creative ways. The Lion King perhaps being a little more creative because they're told with lions as opposed to with humans, but... Um, the Lion King, for me, is still my favorite hand-drawn Disney animated film or my favorite movie from the Walt Disney Animation Studios. And it's also, I think, by no coincidence, the only Disney Renaissance film to have been composed by Hans Zimmer when we talk about the score. And I sometimes have this internal debate with myself because Hans Zimmer is, my, is personally my favorite film composer. So I wonder if I... These are my formidable years. We're talking, I was six years old when The Lion King came out. So do I love Hans Zimmer because of The Lion King or do I love The Lion King because of Hans Zimmer? Or is there a sort of, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't work both ways, which I, I think in some ways it does kind of work both ways that The Lion King made me sort of appreciate Hans Zimmer more and Hans Zimmer's music helped me to appreciate The Lion King more. We'll talk more about the reasons why I love The Lion King when we get to it. Um, but I think it's useful to have some context as always for some of our favorites, and it'll also help us to lean into those movies when we get to them. There's, you know, the Disney Renaissance, the, the word Renaissance is interesting too, because we, 
when you think about the actual Renaissance um, in, in a historical perspective, which took place centuries before the Disney Renaissance, um, we're talking about this artistic revival. Um, we see a lot of, you know, Renaissance art sort of transformed culture. Um, it reflected culture in many ways, but it also helped to transform culture. It is a period of enlightenment. It is a period of prosperity and change and transformation. And a lot of that is very true with the Disney Renaissance as well. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, two people and one more than the other. Um, one more for, uh, let me let me just say who they are, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Um, between the two of them, um, Alan Menken composed six out of the 10 Disney Renaissance films. Um, so he was involved in more than half of these movies. Howard Ashman was involved in three of them. Um, and, you know, he, 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 that's unfortunate because he passed away at a young age, but we see that he was involved with really the first three major Disney Renaissance films. So I think that had he been alive to continue forward, he would have partnered, continued to partner incredibly well with Alan Menken and perhaps um, even propelled the Disney Renaissance beyond even where it is today. But the Disney Renaissance as a whole, I think, is thanks a lot to the two of them. Um, you know, Mike, I, I know before we we started, I first of all, I encourage if anyone hasn't watched Howard, the documentary on Disney Plus, to please go and watch it because it is all about Howard Ashman. There's a lot of Alan Menken in there as well and talks about the pair of them working together. You really have to thank not only Michael Eisner and Frank Wells for championing this new strategy and fun, helping to fund a lot of these films, but also Alan Menken and Howard Ashman for delivering on such iconic music for these films. But Mike, I know we spoke before and you did a, a lot more research about the background of these two and their unique backgrounds when it comes to Disney films. So what did you discover when you did some research about this pair of composers? So I also want to make a, a note about Eisner Wells as well of giving them a lot, both of them a lot of creative freedom because they were involved in not only just the music, but all the casting choices. They were involved in these films and even some of the storytelling elements as well. So they were very much involved in a number of these films and truly were the reason why this renaissance came about. They brought, they really brought this essence of what makes these you know what makes animated film so important where it can go as an art form and really bright bringing as i mentioned that broadway element into it which is interesting because that is essentially the background of these two individuals um alan macon um as you mentioned i mean he you know he was born and raised in manhattan um, his dad, even though he was a dentist, was you know a piano player, and his mom was an actress and a and a dancer as well. So he was already brought up in that. In fact, uh, I, I guess there was a uh, interview with him once that he mentioned that he would be bored at school uh, or bored at playing piano. So he would actually take um, sonatas and 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 fugues and actually improvise on top of them because he was just bored of playing the same thing over <laughs> and over again. So he already had wow. that aspect of of him. And uh, he, in fact, he even went to NYU for musicology. So he already knew from an early age that that music was going to be a part of his life. And at some point in time, he met up with Howard Ashman, who was a, a playwright at the time. And the two of them teamed up and did, did this little 
like off-Broadway thing at the time called Little Shop of Horrors. It was actually the two of them that that put together and both wrote wrote and and composed the music for Little Little Shop of Horrors, which is kind of amazing. And so through that notoriety is essentially how it came about for being involved with these Disney films. So if you kind of go back, you can see how all these things essentially played out. Also, something I want to know about Alan Menken that should not be overlooked is that Alan Menken has won eight Academy Awards, which is the second highest in the music category for anybody. 11 Grammys, seven Golden Globes, a Tony and a Daytime Emmy, which means he's got what's called an EGOT, which if you don't know what an EGOT is, it's basically it's an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and a Tony. There are only 17 people in history that have ever received an EGOT of all four of those awards. And Alan Menken is one of them. So to, to I want to make sure that it's put into context of not to underestimate Alan Menken, not only in his involvement in the Disney Renaissance, but just his entire career and how much influence he's had. It, it is truly remarkable. Um, it is. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I, I was going to say that Alan Menken definitely, um, you know, obviously he, he and he's he's still involved with Disney and Disney films today, even beyond the Disney Renaissance. He's composed films for uh, music for films like Tangled and he's and, and Enchanted and he's, he's done a lot of incredible work. The point I wanted to just reinforce before you continue is the idea of the both the pair of them being involved in the creative process for these films. I think that does indicate the the shift and the thought process behind how you make Disney films is that the music is not an afterthought, but an integral part of the story. And that goes back again to Walt's philosophy and Walt's era of the music helping to um, propel the story forward and be a part of the story. The other thing I was going to mention, I think it's no surprise that the pair of them come from a Broadway musical background and half of the Disney Renaissance films became major Broadway musicals after the films debuted. And one of them, two of them, sorry, are still there today. The Lion King and Aladdin. You can still go and watch on Broadway, which by the way, if you go see Aladdin, I don't know if that's still true today, but when I saw it, not even that long ago, just a few years ago, Jonathan Freeman, who is the voice of Jafar in the film, also plays Jafar in Aladdin the musical and it is amazing to go see Aladdin on Broadway and hear Jafar's laugh on stage because it is the exact same person the exact same cackle and laugh from the movie which is so iconic so go I see Aladdin on Broadway that, if he's now there. I now I want to make a trip to New York just to go see Aladdin musical just to see he, him do that because that's he might not be amazing. in it anymore but when I saw I have to I have to double check the cast list but he was at least at, at one point for a long time, um, I guess he lives in New York, uh, the the voice of, I'm sorry, that he played uh, Jafar on Aladdin and Broadway. Um, so anyway, Mike, you were, you were talking about the, the two of them. We, we kind of tangented into uh, talking about Broadway a little bit, but important backgrounds. No, the, the one other thing I want to make mention about Howard Ashman is it's actually uh, interesting that you brought up Aladdin because Ashman actually was the one who pitched Aladdin to the execs to make into a film so again just wanted to as you mentioned about they really put the not just forefront of the music itself but also the people behind the music and really putting them into the driver's seat for just the upcoming animated features that they're going to 
you know, produce in the studio itself and what those stories should be and how they should be done and not not just even the music behind it. And I think that was so important for creating this essentially this Disney renaissance on the quality of these films as a whole. Very important for sure. Um, so let's get into some of these movies. Before we do that last thing, I want to share to put some one final piece of context for this period of time. Um, so some some interesting summary facts that I uh, that I sort of compiled for the Disney Renaissance. I already mentioned two of them. Alan Menken was involved in six of the ten films. Half of the films became major Broadway musicals. Two composers ended up writing music for Soren. Um, Jerry Goldsmith from Mulan wrote the music, the original Soren over California theme, and then Bruce Broughton from Rescuers Down Under wrote the uh, Soren Around the World theme adapted from Jerry Goldsmith's original version. Um, the only Disney film, oh, sorry, the, the Rescuers Down Under was the second film, not the only film, the second film from Walt Disney Animation Studios not to include a song of some kind, like a, a, a spoken lyrical song. The first was The Black Cauldron. Every other Disney movie in history had some sort of musical song that was sung um, either by a main character or in the background. So I found that interesting that that's also the only Disney Renaissance film that we sometimes don't consider to be a part of a, the, a, a an actual Disney Renaissance film just debuted during this time period. Um, five, you mentioned Academy Awards. Five of the 10 films received the Academy Award for best score in the years that they debuted. Six out of the 10 received an Academy Award for the best song. Um, one film had a song win a Grammy for Song of the Year. Let's put that in the context. Song of the Year, a Grammy against yep. every song out there <laughs> came from a Disney movie. Um, one won a Grammy for best soundtrack album. Um, two won Grammys for best instrumental composition for motion picture or television. And then combined these 10 albums um, which again, the only exception here is Rescuers Down Under. They're all at least um, reached gold status um, in the RIAA. Um, they are they account for more than thirty million album sales to date. Um, there is one diamond winner. Hey, Lion King. Um, there are <laughs> there are five multi platinum. Um, five have earned platinum multi platinum status. One has earned platinum status and two have earned gold status, um, which again, if you add those up, it's about 30 million in album sales. Um, so we're talking about a a, a monumental um, period in time, not just because these Disney films are so memorable, but a lot of it has to do with the music composed for these films are so award-winning and groundbreaking, um, which is why I'm excited to, to talk about them today. So lots of interesting, lots of interesting statistics. Let's jump into The Little Mermaid. Um, so we have Alan Menken and Howard Ashman working on this. This is where their introduction into Disney films took place. We also have some iconic casting choices. So Jodie Benson playing the role of Ariel, Samuel E. Wright playing the role of Sebastian, Pat Carroll playing the, uh, playing the part of Ursula, um, and all three of these characters, which is not true for every Disney film, but they played both the voice and the singing roles, um, which there are a few films that there is a different cast choice for the singing role than the voice role, um, which Lion King is actually one of those. But uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Mike, let's talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about The Little Mermaid, um, anything you might have researched 
talk about some of our favorites, but um, what are your thoughts about The Little Mermaid as a whole? I mean, The Little Mermaid as a whole, I mean, you know, again, you can't deny that this was a definitely a, a I mean, as, as, a, as a kid, I didn't know really any better what, what was actually going on, but you can tell, as you mentioned, the quality of Little Mermaid, it was dramatically different than anything that was done in the past and really set the bar quite high um, for what can be considered for not only just for animation, but also what can be done with music in film, just in film in general, not even just in animation, but just in film in general. And uh, I think that's something that should not be overlooked. I mean, obviously, Little Mermaid is not, definitely not my favorite, um, but is, is such a gorgeous film. The music is absolutely beautiful in it. Um, this is, uh, as you're talking about before, uh, one of the films that uh, has received uh, uh, Oscar for uh, best score um, for original music in 1990. And um, one of the things that I did find quite interesting, and this actually happens quite a bit because when you're doing especially film or even just um, doing albums, there are so many decisions that are being made in what's going to be included, what's not. And usually it's not clear cut on every single song is going to make it. And for The Little Mermaid, part of your world almost didn't make the cut Yeah, as being part of the film. They, in fact, when they did original screen testing, they found that it was an issue because children would get antsy during that song and lose interest. And so they said, let's not include this in there. And, you know, they they fought for it, including the producers actually fought for it. In fact, they mentioned that they I guess they made a, a point of that in Wizard of Oz, they almost cut somewhere over the rainbow for the almost the same reasons. And I think they kind of got the point of <laughs> saying, OK, <laughs> fair, fair. All right, we'll leave it in. And they did uh, additional screenings. And I, I get uh, since it was an er such an early screening, there wasn't a lot um, visually that was going on, which is I felt uh, they felt could be the reason why their children were losing attention. But once they had a little bit more of a finished version, they realized that they were very engrossed and they had made sure that there was a lot of visual elements in that scene to keep the in the, the children entertained and interested in what was going on in that scene. And uh, can you imagine what the Little Mermaid would be like without a part of your world? I mean, one of the most that was probably one of the, the definitive songs of the entire film is that song. Yeah, that defines sort of the hero's conquest in this film. Yeah. I, without it, uh, you can add that into the story, but that is, to me, it's almost the let it go of this movie, um, to, to reference a, a future movie, Frozen. And I think even with let it go, um, they didn't initially think that that would be the hit song from the film. Um I don't know what they thought it would be, but they just saw it as a um, it's actually, actually the opposite. They kept it in. But I think Howard Ashman had a big role in conveying the importance of this particular piece. It's personally my favorite from the movie. Um, I know that 
the song that won the Academy Award was Under the Sea. It is probably one of the most iconic Disney songs of all time. I'm sure most people would think it's their favorite or, or say that it's their favorite for this movie. Personally, for me, it's Part of Your World is, is my favorite song from this film. Um, I also think it's interesting, and this came from the Howard documentary, Alan Menken talks about, it could have been that, it could have been another interview I saw with him. He talks about the, um, and in fact, I think it was probably another interview I saw with him. Uh, he talks about the the um, piano part for the for part of your world, which also is part of the intro title sequence. Does he, he wrote the music to sound like a waterfall, um, kind of capturing what a, a waterfall would sound like. Um, and if you listen back to it, it, it definitely sounds like a waterfall, which is amazing. I love when composers talk about the inspiration for the lyrics are easy to because we're, we're speaking in in terms that you and I typically speak every day, just speaking in English. But um, in spoken word, we get sort of the motivation and some of the the idea of what the words are meant to convey. But it's sometimes harder to um, almost like looking at a painting um, to try to understand what story is being conveyed. So I thought it was interesting that that part of the water of the piano was was meant to convey a waterfall. Um, almost like climbing, climbing out from under the sea. And one other thing I'll mention um, that applies to a few of these movies is when you listen to an album's soundtrack, usually, of course, the songs that are sung are the way they are in the film, but sometimes the rest of the score isn't necessarily the same score you get from the movie. It's a, a condensed version of a lot of the themes that you hear. But if you go back and watch the movie, if you've listened to the score a bunch like I do, you sometimes go back and say to yourself, this isn't exactly the same way that it's played in the movie. The themes emerge and, and some of them do have the most iconic parts of the score, of course, are usually in the album. But the Walt Disney Company a few years ago, actually, I think it's multiple years ago now is within the last 10 years though they released the walt disney records legacy collection which they released for the little mermaid for the lion king for aladdin for beauty and the beast and for pocahontas um, and the hunchback of notre dame um, that they are the true music played in the movie so if you ever want to go back and listen to the actual music um that's been um, you know, re-released and updated, um, you know, remastered, I should say, then you can go back and listen to the Walt Disney Records, the Legacy Collection, which includes The Little Mermaid and and has some iconic films in there. But uh, we do get two from the score itself. There are two songs that are from the original album that are iconic that you have probably heard even walking around a Disney park, whether it's in the animation courtyard at Disney's Hollywood Studios or at uh, in the queue for um under the sea the journey of the little mermaid which is the jig which is what um the uh the sailors sort of dance to on the on the ship and the tour of the kingdom which is when eric is taking ariel on a tour of the kingdom um those two pieces are some of the most iconic from the score and some of my favorites but anything else you want to mention about this particular album mike we didn't talk too much about uh under the sea other than the referencing it did win song of the year <laughs> i'm not sorry saying the yeah, best yeah. song for the academy award um yeah and, and that's uh, definitely my favorite 
Undersea is definitely my favorite. I'm de definitely popular opinion on this one. And, you know, for me, Undersea, it, what I like about it was how different it was from the rest of the album. You know, you have the, the steel drum to make in style and it's, it's, you know, it's a, obviously it's, it's one of the more upbeat and fun songs on the, on the record. It's also, I really like the, the, the meaning behind it about like, you know, look how amazing, like where you are right now. Why do you want to be anywhere else? And it kind of, you know, set these things up of, you know, of, you know, the protagonist who wants more out of life and see what else is out there and say, well, you know, look what's also amazing in your own backyard. You have dancing fish. So, you know, <laughs> um, I particularly like that song. Also, I, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned about not just the songs themselves, but just the composition. And one of the things that actually I really like, even more than some of the songs themselves, is is the main title. Like, it's just, it's just so, so beautiful and gorgeous. And I think really defines what The Little Mermaid is, particularly this version of The Little Mermaid. I think it really helps, you know, it really defines the feeling that you have um, when you watch this, you know, when you watch this film. Yeah. Another iconic song that I should reference that I didn't mention is Kiss the Girl is also one of the most iconic um, Disney songs of all time. And uh, we get that on Under the Sea, Journey of the Little Mermaid as well. Um, Le Poisson is a, Le Poisson is a, is a fun song. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't know the chef is... Um, and I'm going to completely butcher his last name, and yeah. I apologize because I I would too. <laughs> but um, uh, Reen um, Arvergino. Uh, I'm I'm trying to. I don't know how to pronounce. I think it his first name is Renee. Renee. First name would yes, be Renee. Renee. But so, I do not know how to um, pronounce he, the last name. If no, if nobody knows, and this is getting completely off topic here for a second, but he played the uh, character of Odo in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. So Eddie, my fellow Trekkie uh, friends out there. Uh, that's who it is, which I didn't know until I looked it up. Like, oh, that's so amazing. And he's, but you, you probably recognize him. He was a, uh, in several films as a character actor, um, you know, did a lot of work over the years. So a uh, fantastic, fantastic actor. So thought of that would be a kind of fun little tidbit. Yes, for sure. And and I also have to mention Poor Unfortunate Souls is another very popular song that's yeah. sung in the movie and an, a, a really incredible villain song. Um, I feel like villain songs are usually done really well in Disney. And this is another great example, especially in modern times, like villain songs are done just so well. Um, I will say, I don't think this one kicked off the modern era, though, for great villain songs, because what's often forgotten is from the Great Mouse Detective, um, Radigan is an incredible <laughs> Disney villain song. <laughs> what did you call me? <laughs> I love that movie. I love Sherlock Holmes, so I love any any reference to Sherlock Holmes. And um Sure, it's it's not remembered as one of the most amazing Disney movies of all time, but Radigan is such a great song. Um, I think it's Bridget, on par with Poor Unfortunate Souls. Upside down far too long. <laughs> <laughs> I love oh, that song. so many memorable lines. Yeah. Um, all right, so that that kicks. I mean, The Little Mermaid really kicked off the Disney Renaissance, and what a bang! Um, and that's why it was such an award-winning film was not just for the story. Notice we didn't really talk about the story here. We talked about the incredible music. Um, I think the, the the music for this case, uh, for this movie, might have even outshined the story of the of the film itself, which is not the case for every Disney Renaissance film. I think there are plenty of examples we'll go through where the story at least matches or, well, it's hard to exceed the music, but at least matches the um, the quality of the music 
that's in the film. Um, but I, I would argue that without the music for The Little Mermaid, that it perhaps would not have been as iconic as it is. Um, when you really peel back the layers and look at the story, um, which is based off of a very famous old fable, and it's been uh, you know uh, adapted and changed as many Disney films will do, but it it in itself the when you actually watch the story unfold, it's still fun and great. But the music makes this movie as iconic as it is. I would. It argue. really does make you. It really brings you into the story in a way that you, is very hard to do without it and really helps you feel for these characters and, and what they are going through. And even as, as I, and I think that's why it stands the test of time, but also so good for children because, you know, a lot of times you don't really understand what's going on here. You don't really understand that much about, you know, the, the situation of these characters or the thema thematic elements behind it, but the music you know, makes you feel either sad or longing or 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 excited and it helps lead you through the story of the feelings that you know that they want to convey at that particular point in time in that particular point of those scenes and i think that's why the music is so important and honestly probably what we remember the most from these films seeing them as you know as children is really going to be the music behind it yeah one other thing I'll mention real quick before we jump to our next movie that I think I'm thinking about how Broadway musicals in a lot of cases, it's the same story that the music propels a lot of Broadway musicals forward and the stories themselves would still be very interesting to watch. And there are examples of Broadway shows that don't really have, you know, music that's sung, um, but most of them do. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, the, the one thing that is present in a lot of these films that is not if I really think back, not really present in former Disney movies before it is a Broadway thing, which or musical, a music, a thing that they took from musicals, which is a reprise. Um, so you have like the the part part of your world sung by Jody Benson. And then in previous Disney movies, if you think back to like Mary Poppins or if you think back to um, Pinocchio, like once they sing, once you upon a when you wish upon a star, that's it. You don't really hear when you wish upon a star again. Um, but here we hear part of your world and then we hear a reprise for part of your world. And we get that in a lot of other Disney Renaissance films is that theme, that motif, that music um, carried forward to continue the story. Um, and the reprises are in many cases, some of my favorite, like very chilling, like you get goosebumps when she sings it for the second time, even sometimes more than the first time. Um, so that's another thing else I want to mention. Let's go to our shortest conversation the rescuers down under it's only the shortest because it just has a score um and this was composed by bruce broughton it did not win any awards um it's still for me like i i like the rescuers down under it's not my favorite disney movie of all time by any standard but visually i think we talked about earlier visually this is a stunning movie 
especially for the time. Um, it it really that opening sequence, Mike, is is I still have it like burned into my brain. It is it is so gorgeous. I think a lot of critics talked even about the flight scenes with Cody. Um, that those were not as impressive as if you go see Avatar, Avatar: The Way of Water. But like at the time, for seeing an animated film, those were impressive visual sequences back Absolutely. in 1990. Um, and Bruce Broughton also, as I mentioned. There's a funny little, um, I guess, round circle piece to this, which is Bruce Broughton wrote the score to Soarin' Around the World, which, as I mentioned, was adapted from Jerry Goldsmith's Soarin' Over California soundtrack, and Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score to Mulan. But Cody's Flight, which is one of the songs in Rescuers Down Under, is also played in the queue for Soren. So if you go back and listen to the Soren music loop, you will actually hear music from Rescuers Down Under, written by Bruce Broughton, who also wrote the soundtrack to Soren Around the World. So I thought that was an interesting little tidbit that's there. And I, I, and honestly, talking about the score, Cody's Flight is probably my favorite um, song that's in it and is, I think, the most iconic part of the score. A hundred percent. One of the things I also want to mention outside of Disney attractions, uh, um, Bruce Broughton also composed a couple other uh, fan favorites. Uh, one of them um, is Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. He composed that film. And I'm like, oh, I can I can definitely hear that. And and the sequel. I'm not going to leave out the sequel on that one. And uh, just a fun little thing. He also did some of the composition for Tiny Toon Adventures. So again, all the, the 90, oh, 90s kids out here, you'll appreciate that, <laughs> that too. So oh, a lot Tiny of fun Toon things Adventures. about that one. <laughs> so I appreciate show. that. I don't know if he did the theme song, but he did compose, compose music within it. So uh, it wasn't clear if he actually did the theme song for that one. Yeah, I mean, Bruce did a lot of Disney Parks work. I've, I've referenced it before. He wrote the modern composition for Spaceship Earth, that that music for the you know 2007 Judy Dench version. He also wrote the theme to Ellen's Energy Adventure. Um, he wrote the music for Timekeeper. Um, we referenced at the beginning, also taking this full circle. He's, he's done a lot of really great Disney Parks music as well. Um, <clears throat> so that's it for rescuers down under because not too much we're not gonna harp on this one too long if you haven't seen the movie though please do yourself a favor and see it to be fair you really don't even need to see the rescuers to see and appreciate the rescuers down under because i saw the yeah, rescuers really is a after the rescuers down under and i still me got too. it <laughs> yeah me too yeah i saw because I, I saw rescue because rescuers i i never saw on vhs as a, as a kid but uh rescuers down under was in the theaters i remember i actually remember thinking to myself when i heard about it, i'm like oh there, there's a there was original one i didn't even know that there was an original film called the rescuer so same thing with you you don't, don't need the context for it um you know rescuers is also a great film as well um but the rescuers down under it's it's fun it's funny i laugh i still when i see it from time to time i still laugh at it so um it, it's just it's just a fun watch um the next one is honestly i think the one that whenever i put up a poll on my Instagram stories, no matter what it is up against, it usually wins, um, which is Beauty and the Beast. Um, this came out in 1991. Um, so we had a Little Mermaid in 89, Rescuers Down Under in 90, 
Beauty and the Beast in 1991. Again, we have Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. This is the last movie that the two teamed up on from beginning to end and oversaw every element of it. Although, unfortunately, Howard Ashman did not live long enough to see it in theaters. Um, but again, this is a case where we get a cast that both spoke the parts of the characters and sung the parts of the characters. Um, so we have Paige O'Hara as Belle. We have Angela Lansbury, iconic Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts. Um, Robbie Benson as the Beast. Richard White as Gaston. And Jesse Corti, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he played the role of LeFou. And they all spoke and sung the parts to this. Um, this is, I think, another great example of a of a story or of a movie that was delivered like a Broadway musical and eventually became a Broadway musical. And I think, and this also did come up in conversations I've heard um, with Alan Menken about the opening song. Now we do have a prologue, which is still really iconic. It introduces the backstory of the beast, the score that Alan Menken composed for the PCD composed for the background music for the prologue is bone chilling. It's it's just like, again, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about that prologue sequence. And then we move into a five minutes opening song, which probably could have been even longer, but we introduce the majority of the cast in this opening sequence. And it is done in a true Broadway style production level. Um, where you have all the car, you know, you have this quiet stage setting introducing the the location. You have one character on stage, the hero of our story, and all of a sudden the cast starts to enter the stage and you have like every single cast member starting to get on stage and then by the end they're all singing on stage and you're like, what am I watching right now? That's what we get with Belle, which also happens to be an amazing song on top of that. Mike, why don't you talk to us a little bit about Beauty and the Beast? Definitely one of the definitely one of my favorite songs and, and the baguettes. Hurry up, by the way. Oh, <laughs> uh, how I how I how I relate to uh in our in our 2022 and 2023 inflation era period of uh I need six eggs, that's too expensive. <laughs> expensive. Ah, uh, well played. Well played. Groceries went up <laughs> over eleven percent last year. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> so. Oh man, I, I mean, also definitely love this. Bell is uh, is definitely one of my favorite uh, favorites. Not the favorite. I'll hold that for a second. But that, it's not my favorite. My absolute favorite, but definitely one of my favorite. Uh, you know, it's not only introduces. Um, you know, Belle as a character, but all the characters in the town, it really showcases Belle as an outcast. So you really are, you know, for all, all of our fellow at, uh, outcasts out there, you really start connecting with the character almost immediately right off the bat saying, okay, this is not your typical person. Um, she loves to read and like, and, you know, and, and, and is engrossed into these stories and everyone else thinks she's weird. So, you know, I know for all of us, we can relate to that. So, um, so right off the bat, one uh, tidbit that I found written interesting was originally it was not supposed to be a musical. Ooh. 
Beauty and the Beast was not originally going to be musical. In fact, what a they had the idea. That been. Right. They had Beauty and the Beast as a project for a very, very long time and didn't know what to do with it. And that's when um, Ashman came along and said, this should probably be a musical. And because uh, com- they, they had so many I get, uh, pre-production issues with Beauty and the Beast and trying to make it work as a story. And once they changed it into musical, that was it. And all of a sudden, it really, obviously, it took off. So I uh, found that was really particularly interesting. In fact, even during production, um, they still had some uh, interesting thoughts about uh, a number of songs, actually, that I found was like was very, very fascinating. One was uh, Beauty and the Beast. The title song was originally supposed to be rock oriented. Wow. Very different. And not a love ballad. And they said, yeah, maybe it should be more like a love battle. Can you imagine Beauty of the Beast as a, a rock <laughs> version? And, For and all my musician friends out there, I dare you to go make that a rock version because that would be really let's interesting. It. Let's hear it. Yeah, I would um, love to hear that. And that's the song that won the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Original Song. Right. So it's kind of interesting. The other thing I thought was uh, very interesting uh, is Be Our Guest, which is also one of my favorites. Not my favorite. Still not my favorite. That's my favorite one from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. I think popular opinion probably be our guest is going to. That's the one that all of us remember. It's a fantastic song. I got one. There's one and one more above it for me. Um, But originally, um, and that also won um, best uh, original song for as an Oscar was um, was be our guest. And originally the plan was, I guess, when. Bell's father Maurice was captured. That VR guest would be for him. Oh, so I want you to all think about this for a second. The whole sequence, the whole sequence of the dining room and everything, like and, and everything out. But imagine replacing Bell with Maurice. You know, I could see it, but it just doesn't work as well. <laughs> it does not work. I thought that was really funny. You crazy old Maurice in the seats and with everyone and like he imagine like them like putting his napkin on him. I don't know. I'm sorry, but I don't know if I could take that scene seriously with, with Maurice and the bell in that place. Maybe I'm just in hindsight, definitely not. Here. In hindsight, probably definitely not. But just I thought that was really fascinating that they originally had it where they capture Maurice and now they're just whining and dining him here, like for this poor this poor person. So um yeah, I thought those things were really funny. Very interesting. Well, now I need to know what your favorite song is from Beauty and the Beast. Is it Gaston? Nope. The mob song? Yep. It's very interesting. <laughs> Right. Okay. So I have some very unpopular favorites in some. No, I do. uh, I do too. Believe me. I think I just go on this one for BR because I remember and still even to this day, every time I watch Beauty and Beast from the first time I saw in theaters to now, when I hear that mob song, I'm like, oh yeah, like it's getting real now. Like, yeah, we're going to get a throw down here. And like, I get like excited. I'm like, oh yeah, we're getting to the, yeah, we're getting to the climax of this film. We're getting the, the villagers getting together. They're going to raid, you know, they're going to raid the castle. Like to me, like it gets like, I'm like, oh yeah, there, there, there's some stuff going thrown down right now. And I guess just get, I get goosebumps every time I hear that song. I'm like, oh yeah, it's going to get real. So, and I remember, I, I remember so vividly watching that in theaters and when that song happened i'm like oh yeah 
okay some something's happening here i don't know what it's gonna be but this is this is getting interesting this is getting exciting and okay and also as you know not to be too stereotypical but as a male like you know beauty and beast is a love story i'm like oh we're gonna get some action here i'm like okay cool we're gonna get some action here so that's why bob song for me is is the favorite for me I mean, to be fair, you were, you know, what a seven-year-old boy at the time. So it's yeah. you, you want, yeah, you so want the action. <laughs> I wanted um, the action. I want, yeah. <laughs> I want villagers raising their pitchforks and going after the beast. Like, oh yeah, this is getting exciting. Yeah, I think I was very atypical that way. I didn't always look for the action, but hey, I mean, it's 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 exciting stuff. So uh, it is it is such a great song. But again, we have a um a, another amazing villain song. Gaston, it's such a great villain song. <laughs> oh, it's such a good villain song so well. Um, would not rec- recommend wanna... having that men- number of eggs, though. Just, just stating, uh, like, please. I would not recommend having that many eggs. You will not become the size of a barge. You probably will have experience of other things, but not being the size of a barge. Just heart saying. issues. Um, yeah, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is a is is a an inhumane and inhuman type of uh, character. Um, the 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 one thing I will say also about Beauty and the Beast hasn't been mentioned again. I I referenced the beginning of the Alan Menken score, but there is another song in it that is more iconic than the prologue. Or I I take that back. The prologue is extremely iconic music, but. Um, the song title, if you fans want to go in and look it up, is called Transformation. And this is the song that takes us from when Gaston falls to his doom. Um, spoiler warning for everyone listening. This uh, this movie is 30 years old, so I hope you already How know what happens. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, that's almost 32 years old. The um, So from that part until close to the end of the movie, actually, um, is transformation and it takes us through you don't even have to know what's happening in the movie if you went in cold listening to that song it takes you through a range of emotions it starts with a deep feeling of melancholy and ends with a deep feeling of joy and it takes us on that journey and for me that is positioned or juxtaposed against also one of the most moving scenes in the movie where we get that expression of true love at its purest form and at its most critical moments and it is the moment where tears are shed like that that's the part of the movie where everybody is crying
um, whether it's misty eyed to like I'm bawling, anything in between, like you are feeling something in that scene. And it is as iconic or as monumental as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for its time when Walt had audiences crying over Snow White's, you know, death, her being in or what was an eternal sleep, her being in that glass coffin like that, that sort of level of this is an animated movie. These are drawings. But I feel so emotionally connected at this moment is the same sequence we get with Belle and the Beast on that tower. And the music that Alan Menken composed to accompany that is as emotional as the scene. And when you pair them together, you get such an amazing moment. Uh, they also chose that song to accompany one of the most the saddest parts of the Howard documentary. So you will also cry in the Howard documentary <laughs> when you inevitably watch it. Um, well, unfortunately, it is a sad tale because it is probably one of the most favorite movies of most Disney fans during the Disney Renaissance. It is also the movie that Howard never got to see completed. Um, Aladdin 2, but he didn't work on Aladdin as um, as a comprehensive not comprehensively as as um as much as he worked on beauty and the beast um so it was sort he of was, his, he, he finished production bow. for beauty and the beast for i understand but but all and also was working at the time on aladdin um yeah. when he unfortunately passed so he, he did he did work as much as he possibly could up up until his death so because he really wanted he you know as i mentioned before he pitched aladdin so he really wanted to be involved with that with that particular project so he worked on it as much as he possibly could now we have one other thing on a slightly lighter note that is um that started with beauty and the beast um and every and this this sort of took us into the 90s um it is the first disney movie to get the 90s pop treatments in the credits um so if you think about most of the disney films that you see there is a uh even to this day um there is a pop credit end credit version of one of the major songs from the movie and as opposed to a um an overture to close us out and this it goes into an overture after that but um this was also i think disney trying to get their movies onto the radio more to to try to sell more movie tickets and get people to go to the theater because they hear the song and they're like wow this is a this is a great song i need to to go back and see this movie in theaters um but we do we do get a uh another version a pop version of beauty and the beast which i believe and i need to fact check myself was sung by celine dion um that's not looking. Was it Beauty and the Beast? I might be confused. We all have our we all have our notes up here. <laughs> yeah, it is it is Celine Dion. Um, is she, Celine Dion? Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. I'm like, please tell me, because I actually didn't write this down, but I memorized it and I remember it. Uh, but it is uh, Celine Dion and Piabo Bryson, um, which I don't know as well as Celine Dion, but uh, so we do have like a, and she was at the time like a big pop icon. Um, so it, it. Oh yeah it's fitting so that's we do the beauty and the beast catapulted the the 90s pop end credit sequence that we get um as transitioning us from the uh the main movie uh, the, the end of the movie into the credits and getting also, people to stick around for the that, credits. Ver that, re that that record that specific recording of that song 
um, was also um, the top 10 in, in Billboard uh, for that year as well. Not surprising. And again, it means it's played on the radio more. It's great exposure for the movie. So from a business perspective, it's an excellent investment to uh, pay oh, a very celebrity true. to sing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's move into Aladdin. Um, this is our, our 1992 film. There was only one year in the 90s that did not have a Disney Renaissance film, which was 93. We skip over that to get to a really amazing movie, in my opinion. But we do have 1992 is Aladdin, um, again, composed by Alan Menken and in part by Howard Ashman and sung by this is a case where we now have characters who sing and characters who speak the roles of um of the characters so a, a great example is um aladdin is sung by brad kane um but the cast was why is his name slipping my mind i do not always have these cast actors names memorized um is it him scott yeah scott wanger um, does the voice of Aladdin for speaking, but um, Brad Kane does the voice for singing. Um, but you have Bruce Adler, who does the original Arabian Nights um, opening song. Robin Williams, gonna have to talk about Robin Williams. We have Jonathan Freeman, who I referenced, is the voice of Jafar. He both speaks the role and sings the role. And Leah Salonga um, does the singing voice for Jasmine. And she also does the singing voice for Mulan. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. Absolutely correct. Um, Mike, talk to me about Aladdin. I love Aladdin. <laughs> I don't know why I'm feeling End so story. cheapest right now. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's def definitely one of my favorites um, by far. Um, it's, you know, it's it's fun. I mean, who who can deny? you know, the iconic role of Genie from, um, you know, the legendary Robin Williams. So, um, you know, that to me, I mean, every, I mean, all everything about that film is incredible, but Robin Williams performance is what really is the stand, let's face it, the standout for Aladdin. Like that's who we all remember from it. And he, he was just so iconic and it brought a different type of energy um, to these Disney Renaissance films. And I appreciate that fact too, is that each, as we go through these different films, not only from, um, a musical perspective, things have, are, are varied throughout them, but then in a jet, um, but also in general, the stories and the way that they're presented, they, they, are, they're the same bar of quality, but they change within it, the style of how they're presenting these stories, which makes each one of them so unique in that particular way. And I, that's something else I, I really do appreciate is that they didn't regurgitate the exact same formula. They did allow room for uh, the creatives to really play with these stories and to really convey it in a way that they really see fit. And I feel that way for Aladdin, especially from the comedic elements and, and the, of course, the music behind it. Um, uh, as you mentioned before about uh, Ashman, Tim Rice took over as lyricist during the project. What I found particularly interesting was in this case, uh, usually, I mean, you, most of the time when you're talking about films or even albums in general, you will tend to write more than what e ends up going into the film. But to me, this was uh, was particularly interesting because there were actually 14 songs that were written for Aladdin, 14 of them, and only That's seven actually made it into the film. That's a lot. Wow. So I found that actually very particularly interesting. Um, 
but obviously they they um, did very well because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of them happened to, you know, win Grammy's Song of the Year, which was, of course, A Whole New World. And I mean, that, you know, of all the music that comes out in a year, that you had a song from an M animated film win Grammy Song of the Year. I mean, that is an amazing accomplishment. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess, now when did you last Let your heart decide I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over, sideways, and under On a magic carpet ride A whole new world It is. And is this your favorite song from the movie, Mike? Yeah, it is. And I do i'll I'll tell you why for just in general um i just love that song uh there are a couple other favorites but for me a whole new world i remember in kindergarten because it kind of gives you kind of context of when i how how old i was at the time in kindergarten i had to memorize the lyrics to a whole new world and sing it and i still remember it to this day i will not sing it for you i'm not going to sing it for (laughs) all of you out there I have a terrible singing voice. I'm doing you a favor, but I do remember, it, and that's why it's it's still my favorite because I can I do know every single lyric to that song still this to this day. Yeah, it's it's it, it is that one that you mentioned won that Grammy for Song of the Year, which is an insane accomplishment for a movie to have a song created for it that then becomes the Song of the Year, like wins the Grammy for that. It's actually, but ironically, not my favorite song from Aladdin. Not to say that I don't like the song. I certainly do like that song. But Friends Like Me is actually my favorite song from Aladdin. Yeah, that's that's Aladdin. my second favorite. And the only reason why Whole New World is my favorite is because of that memory that I personal have. personal connection. Yeah. Otherwise, that personal connection. Otherwise, honestly, a friend like friend like me is probably going to be, uh, you know, probably would be my favorite as well. So I totally agree with you. I think probably that's what most people feel like too. I feel like most people, it's either going to be those two, I feel. It's going to be a whole new world or a friend like me. Yeah, it's 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 between those two. And um, well, actually, I take that back. My second favorite is Prince Ali. Um, and I think that part of this probably has a lot to do with Robin Williams, to be honest. Um, if I'm really thinking about, again, this movie came out, I was three years old. Like I, it, I was a young kid, so I don't remember seeing it in theaters, but even seeing it as a kid um, is is uh, is memorable. Those two scenes for me are the most memorable. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the genie. Um, also, Prince Ali, the lyrics for that song first of all i'm i'm terrible at lyrics to begin with like i famous songs i i'm terrible at lyrics joanna constantly if i'm in the car like will always point out an error in my lyrics because i'm the type of person that for some reason i gravitate towards the instrumental part of the song more than the lyrics which makes me very weird but um the lyrics just do not stick with me as much as the instruments do for some weird reason so prince ali if you put me up in a karaoke bar and made me sing this, I would need those words in front of me because I do not have them. Um, but my goodness, like the, this song is just filled with um, like even even the end with 60 elephants, llamas galore. 60 elephants, llamas galore. Hey! 
That's and you have to do that like, like almost twice as fast as way how you said it too. Yeah, I mean, I that, I like honestly, like you know, I'll I'll listen to it, even if I want to sing along. At some point, I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's it. I'm that, it, I'm it, done. If anybody can sing Prince Ali, I mean, I would be really really impressed. That's and like if it, that. If you know the, I mean, it, it makes for amazing Disney trivia too. Like, how many white Persian monkeys does Prince Ali have? He has ninety five. He's got nine. That is good trivia. Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> he like the monkeys. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh my god, um, that's great trivia. I like that. Seventy five golden camels. Um, the purple peacocks. He's got fifty three. Fifty three. Um, yeah, that's a. It's a. It's a menagerie and as we, is referenced. And, yeah, I would say when it comes to exotic type mammals. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is a case also, where like they had a lot of fun writing this song. <laughs> they did, and also too, what I really appreciate you you went mentioned about um the reprise um that they started bringing in, and they did that with Prince Ali, but instead of uh genie um singing it, they they used the same they had different lyrics for Jafar, and I really mm-hmm. liked that that uh, parallel, if you will, between the two versions of the exact same song, but for two very different purposes. Prince Ali, yes, it is he, but not as you know him. Read my lips and come to grips with reality. Yes, meet a blast from your past, whose lies were too good to last. Say hello to your precious Prince Ali. It's true. Um, I don't know if that's the last time we'll see that. I have to think back to it, but it is it is unique at, at, in probably the first instance where we see that. So I, I agree with you there. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think I've gone through my notes on Aladdin. I've mentioned my favorites, talked about the composers. We mentioned this the, the awards that it won. Um, it did win Best Original Score, Best Original Song, Song of the Year, and it is... Um, Three multi-platinum um, status, three three times uh, platinum status, and I think that is it for Aladdin. And that brings us to my favorite movie from the Disney Renaissance, which is The Lion King. And I think maybe part of this has to do with I was six. Thank you so much for listening to Creatives Prevail. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave us a review. They are an immense help. Now go out there and make something happen.